Hello, I'm Mike Lee. I hope you enjoy the podcast. This series takes us off the beaten track, and I explore basically throughout the series one simple question. How the heck we got into this mess in the first place, and how we got to the point that a tiny Asian nation goaded a U.S. president into saying this. Now North Korea's reckless pursuit of nuclear weapons and ballistic missiles threatens the entire world. Much of the how and why we got to the brink of a nuclear war with a tiny nation in East Asia has not just taken place in the blue and white light of our TV and computer screens. Most of it is locked away in the hazy gray vault of history. All but forgotten momentous events, haphazard diplomacy, pure chance, and insanely careless decisions that have fallen to earth to form the jagged and unstable building blocks of the North Korean nuclear crisis. In so many ways, the Korean story is also an American story. For over 150 years, America has tried and is still trying to influence events in Korea. Where did it all begin? A good place to start our journey is 1866. The Tidong River in northern Korea. A crisis is about to erupt. Steam and pistons and huge paddle wheels on the water. Unknown to the outside world, U.S. Captain Page, Chief Mate Wilson, and a crew of 15 are steering a small but heavily armed gunboat called the USS General Sherman. They approach the forbidden Kapsa Gate. It's a narrow passage that acts like a barrier to large foreign vessels. But recent heavy rains have raised the river, so the gunboat slides through the Kapsa. Mother Nature has helped to broker this first of many U.S.-Korean crises. The Americans and their crew have been ordered by the Koreans to stop. They don't, of course. They keep heading toward Pananyang the city where today Kim Jong-un rules over what eventually became the nation of North Korea, an area the size of Mississippi. Think about it this way. If you are American, imagine what would happen today in New York City if a Russian, Chinese, or Iranian gunboat came charging up the Hudson River. That is how seriously the Koreans in this northern province viewed the Sherman boat in 1886, what happened next marked what many regard as the beginning of America's turbulent involvement with Korea and the beginning of the end of Korean isolationism. The General Sherman was a side-wheel steam-driven boat. It had been used by the Union Navy during the American Civil War to patrol the waterways of the Confederate South. The Sherman, 168 feet or 51 meters long, was armor-plated and mounted with 20-pound Parrot rifles and 24-pound howitzers. It was a floating death machine, and it was being used to bring Western traders to a country that did not want to trade. What could go wrong? Well, it's it's the predicament of uh, Korea uh, geopolitically, which is uh, the, the, the so-called shrimp among whales. That's Dr. Mark P. Berry, associate editor for the International Journal on World Peace. Uh, they have an 850-mile border with China. They have about a 12-mile border with uh, Russia. And, of course, uh, right across the Straits of uh, uh, Tsushima, you have Japan. And then, of course, once America was uh, 
uh, in the neighborhood, even as, as, as far away as the Philippines, uh, it made America a player in the neighborhood. And um, Korea was basically seen as easy pickings. Uh, I mean, I'm uh, putting it in a very non-historical terms. The sales pitch being used by these intrepid entrepreneurs on the USS General Sherman might today be called leaning in hard. In 1886, it was just called gunboat diplomacy. Sort of like, we'd just love to do business with you. We'll bring you some of our goodies from Europe, Asia, and America. And you'll give us your goodies, like minerals and other natural resources. And by the way, don't worry about those big guns on our boat. We only use them as a last resort if you don't want to trade with us. Gunboat diplomacy is also known as big stick ideology. Here's Charles Armstrong, professor of Korean studies at Columbia University. There were, there were two uh, incidents uh, in which the uh, U.S. or a, a U.S. ship uh, came into conflict with uh, the Koreans. One was in 1866. The USS General Sherman sailed up the Taedong River toward Pyongyang. Keep in mind that the USS Sherman was not on a U.S. military mission. It was an ex-American warship. The new American civilian owner, W.B. Preston, was on board. The Sherman was essentially manned by a few guys looking to make a buck. It was a merchant ship, uh, and it had a, a, a mixed crew of Malays, Chinese, British, and so on, but it was a, an American vessel. They were there, so they said, to trade with the Koreans. But the Koreans had no intention of trading with anyone. The dynasty that ruled Korea had a rigorous approach to the country's isolationism. They had watched the ruling classes in neighboring China crumble during the Opium Wars. Well aware of the harms of free trade, they banned their people from dealing with the outside world. I asked Professor Armstrong why did foreigners want to get their hands on Korea? Well, Korea was one of the last parts of the world in the late 19th century that was not connected through trade, diplomacy, and political connections to the West, you know, to Europe, to the U.S., uh, areas that were greatly expanding their economic and military reach around the world. Korea was usually not seen as so important in itself, but as a kind of gateway to China, which had uh, this enormous market that uh, European and American countries wanted to have access to. And Korea was a country which had seen some very negative consequences of being connected to the outside world. They had gone through, uh, they had been the site of a brutal war between Japan and, and China back in the 1590s, 1592 to 1597. And it was after that experience that Korea really closed itself off from much of the outside world. And when the, um, the Americans and the Europeans came to Korea in the 1870s, 1880s, it was uh, Western observers who invented this term, the hermit kingdom, to, to describe Korea. That Korea really wanted to be left alone, which they thought was strange because you, want, you would want to be connected to the world to be uh, a modern country, but it, it actually made sense, given Korea's long history of invasion and, and subjugation, that they would prefer to keep the world out as much as possible. The Koreans had managed to keep the outside world at bay in part because they could not be divided by outside players. 
1986, there were no major internal differences among Koreans which could be exploited. Or to put it another way, Korea had no divisive factions like we see in today's Middle East. No Sunni and Shiite rivalries like in the Arab world, which, let's face it, have been used by outsiders to conquer and divide or wage proxy wars. Korea, by contrast, was culturally solid. North Korea and South Korea did not exist as separate states in 1886. Those lines had not yet been drawn. It was just Korea. There was a unified language, a unified culture, uh, uh, a unified uh, society for, uh, for, for many, many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Evans Revere is an expert on Korea and a non-resident fellow at the Brookings Institute. Uh, there are very distinctive regional differences in Korea, even within South Korea, very distinctive uh, regional differences in cuisine and, and accents and that sort of thing. Uh, but, uh, but a real difference that has developed in, in Korea uh, is the difference in, in uh, political culture and the economy and in society uh, that has developed since 1945, since the division of the country. So in 1866, Korea was unified, like most Koreans want to be today according to many experts. As this series continues, we will explore how that North-South division, that fracture of cultural harmony, came about through war, politics, and, say some, a tiny bureaucratic oversight that put us on the road toward today's nuclear weapon standoff. More on that in future episodes. So let's discover what finally happens to the crew of the USS Sherman in America's first known historic encounter with Korea. They keep steam paddling deeper into the Hermit Kingdom, which they thought they could seduce or intimidate into joining the outside world. Captain Page is sailing up the Tidon looking for riches, sort of like Kurtz, the ivory trader, Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. But it is the heart of Koreans that the crew of the Sherman is about to discover. A local official has told them they'll be given food and water and that their request to come ashore will be passed along to the Korean ruler. But, says the North Korean official, the boat must not approach the city of Nanyang, which of course is exactly what the Americans on board are going to try. They are reportedly carrying a cargo of cotton, tin, and glass to trade for something. Maybe Korean paper, rice, gold, herbs, or leopard skin. But according to some accounts, the Koreans believed the crew of the Sherman wanted to steal gold and artifacts from local royal tombs. Perhaps the fact that they had come along with an armed gunboat made the Koreans wonder whether the Americans were really just there to buy some rice. Again, Charles Armstrong from Columbia University. Uh, and the coastal forces in Korea, in what is now North Korea, told them to turn back. Um, they refused. Uh, they wanted to establish uh, uh, a um, uh, nav uh, navigation rights and uh, treaties with uh, the Korean government. What happens next is a matter of dispute. Who shot first, etc. But basically, the crew of the USS Sherman gets into a battle with the Koreans. And the ship eventually ran aground. It was fired upon, and the, the crew was uh, killed and the ship burned. Some reports say the fighting lasted four days. Some say the Koreans launched fireboats at the Sherman, filled with wood, sulfur, and saltpeter. As the Sherman went up in flames, the crew threw themselves into the water. 
Some of the boat's crew were reportedly beaten to death. Professor Armstrong. Uh, and then in 1871, five years later, partly to investigate what had happened to the Sherman, because it wasn't clear uh, what its fate had been, uh, another uh, ship, the USS uh, Monocacy, sailed towards Seoul. Uh, and there, they again, like the Sherman, had been told to turn back. Uh, they didn't. Uh, they uh, returned fire to the Korean coastal forces. There was a, a battle in which several hundred Koreans were killed, which got some uh, media play in the U.S. The New York Tribune called it our little war with the heathen. Uh, but it, it, the end result was that the Americans decided it essentially wasn't worth the trouble of pushing the Koreans too far uh, to engage with them. They would just make their point and leave. And after the Kangwa battle, it was called, of 1871, the Korean government, the Korean monarchy, felt that they had won. They had defeated the, the, the French who had come in 1876 to do something, 1866 who had done something very similar, the Americans in 1871. Uh, and so the Korean kingdom uh, chose to maintain their isolation until five years later, finally, they were opened up by the Japanese. So the Americans were interested in trade and diplomacy, um, navigation and so on. Uh, but in the end, they didn't feel that it was worth the trouble to really push too hard on the Koreans because they were putting up too much of a fight. When America backed away from trying to do trade with Korea in the late 1800s, Japan stepped up to the plate. The Japanese were not as squeamish as America in those days when it came to breaking a few eggs to make an omelet, or in their case, an empire. Professor Armstrong. Japan had begun to expand its empire in the late 19th century. It had gone to war with China in 1894-1895 and carved out the island of Taiwan as a colonial possession. Uh, and then the influence of Japan grew in, uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. Now, at this point in the early 20th century, Korea was still an independent country. But Japan was putting pressure on Korea to sign exclusive trade agreements. It was obvious that Japan wanted more or less complete control of Korea. But someone else also wanted in on the action. Russia. <laughs> It's 1903, and Russia is an imperial dictatorship, swaggering with military power and getting stroppy over Japan's growing influence in Korea, which the Russians consider their backyard. Tsar Nicholas II is entering his 10th year in power. The national anthem is called God Save the Tsar. Tsar Nicholas is feeling his oats. The Russians, of course, uh had it in their mind uh, to take advantage of Korea. Here again is Professor Mark Berry from the Journal on World Peace. He's talking about how and why Imperial Russia first tried to get their hooks into Korea. There was a point at time, uh, a point of time, I think, in uh, Russian history leading up to the uh, beginning of the 20th century, where it sought to make the Russian Far East be able to be more of a vibrant area uh, for the Russian landmass. Keep in mind that Russia has a border with Korea, a short border, 
but critically, it borders Korea on the coast of the Sea of Japan, far south enough that the sea in Korea does not freeze during winter. It was sort of Russia's Florida fantasy to get their hands on at least that part of Korea. Korea was very inviting because it has ice-free uh, ports, whereas uh, Vladivostok uh, is the only uh, uh, even part of the year uh, Russian port. Uh, and it may not even be ice-free uh, during uh, much of the year. So Korea was very inviting for that. So this was all based on the tendencies of, of, uh, of so-called uh, imperialist powers in the late 19th century and into the early 20th century. And um, the, the game of uh, taking advantage of China, taking advantage of, of Korea at their moments of weakness for the benefit of Russia. So Russia figures it can muscle in on the action and coerce Japan into sharing Korea. After all, Russia is big. On the other hand, Japan. Despite its muscular national anthem, is small. And I imagine that Russia simply saw uh, Japan as uh, perhaps willing, in order to avoid war, to divide Korea more or less in the middle uh, as a uh, more or less permanent arrangement. Well, the Japanese reply is, hey, thanks, but no thanks. We'll just hang on to Korea for ourselves. The Russians are desperate. They agonize again over the map and come back to Japan with Plan B. We, the Russians, propose that you, Japan, not occupy Korea further north than the 39th parallel, creating a buffer zone between Russia and Japan. By the way, parallels are lines on the world map that look like a ladder. The further north you go, the higher the number. Is that important? Oh, yeah. It puts Russians on record as early as 1903 as having been willing to give up their influence in all of Korea except the far north. That would have left the Russians with their fingers in a much smaller pie than they eventually ended up with at the 38th parallel. The current DMZ, Korean Demilitarized Zone, which divides the nations of North and South Korea into almost equal halves. By the way, the story of how Korea was finally split at the 38th parallel is almost unbelievable, and I'll explain that extraordinary chain of events in a future episode in this series. Meanwhile, let's pick up our journey, with Japan and Russia pulling on Korea like a wishbone in 1903. So what happened to Russia's Plan B to split Korea at the far north 39th parallel? Japan said no and declared war on Russia in 1904. Much to Moscow's shock and horror, Japan pretty much kicked Russia's butt. Basically, Japan is the winner. And after nearly two years of fighting, when it comes time to declare a truce in 1905, America is called in to help mediate a Russian-Japanese peace treaty. The high-ranking American official in charge of arranging that Japanese-Russian truce was then U.S. Secretary of State William Howard Taft. By the way, America was also leery of Japan's empire building in East Asia and made a deal with Japan as part of that negotiation, a secret deal that has never been forgotten and perhaps not forgiven by many Koreans. And you may not even know about it. Professor Armstrong. In uh, 1905, uh, the Secretary of, of State William Howard Taft 
and the Japanese Prime Minister uh, Katsura met secretly in Japan to reach an, uh, to work on an agreement, uh, which in the end was for the U.S. to uh, allow Japan more or less to have its way in Korea if Japan did not interfere with the U.S. territory of the Philippines. Uh, and so this Taft-Katsura agreement is something that I think it's fair to say most, most Americans have never heard of, but is still remembered in Korea uh, as essentially the U.S. selling out Korea to Japan in exchange for the Philippines, which was an American colonial possession. So with that, and, and this, this ended the Russo-Japanese War, uh, this was part of the, uh, the agreement to end the war between Russia and Japan. Uh, and uh, Teddy Roosevelt won a Nobel Peace Prize for uh, the peace agreement um, in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, that ended the war. Uh, and connected to that was this secret agreement to uh, allow the, the Japanese to, to have their way, or, or that would say that the U.S. would not interfere with uh, Japanese plans for the occupation of Korea. So Koreans have America to thank for throwing them under the bus to begin with, letting Japan do what they wished with Korea in exchange for staying out of the Philippines in 1905. What the Japanese did next was to force Korea to sign a treaty which basically turned the Korean peninsula into an unofficial Japanese colony. And then in 1910, Japan officially annexed Korea as its own. Did the U.S. and Japan collude to turn Korea into a virtual slave state for 35 years? You will, of course, have your own opinion. Here is Dr. Mark P. Berry with his analysis. And I tend to put a little more emphasis these days on um, Teddy Roosevelt uh, because uh, I learned that Roosevelt was quite infatuated with the rising Japan in the early 1900s. And uh, it was generally a commitment uh, that the U.S. would support uh, uh, Japanese uh, uh, efforts to uh, emerge uh, in Asia and in a way to kind of um, be a U.S. ally in Asia. These days, I tend to look at um, that as being a very pivotal moment, which kind of gave a, um, at least in some people's view, a carte blanche uh, to Japan to uh, uh, to not only continue doing what it was doing from around 1895, but ultimately to consummate it with their annexation of, of uh, Korea in 1910. There's the contentious Taft-Katsura memorandum, which was uh, secret, which at least some historians say uh, essentially gave uh, Japan uh, the, uh, the hegemony over the Korean Peninsula, as long as Japan looked the other way uh, over the uh, U.S. Uh, having the control, uh, the military occupation that it did in the Philippines. Uh, so I guess rather than simply focusing, as some historians may do, on the, the what happened during World War II, I really tend to go, think that the threshold moment may have actually been uh, Roosevelt's uh, over-enabling of Japan uh, in Asia, uh, around 1905-1906. The annexation uh, was formalized in 1910, but really effectively by 1905, Korea uh, was a de facto colony 
but we we technically say that it was 35 years of occupation, uh, colonialization, but it was really closer to 40. Uh, and, um, you know, in the end, uh, Japan considered uh, Korea to be its backyard, uh, good for uh, mineral resources, agricultural resources. Uh, uh, and in, in the final years of their occupation, uh, Koreans, um, uh, m- many were forced to worship at uh, Shinto shrines, uh, change their uh, Korean names to Japanese names. Uh, many were brought over to Japan as forced labor, which uh, largely accounts for the uh, 600,000 some odd uh, 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 ethnic Korean population still in Japan today, uh, and um, and it, it created a lot of damage in the uh, in the region. Many Americans, of course, have never heard of the Taft Katsura Memorandum, in which the U.S. left Korea to the mercy of Japan, and most know nothing about the USS Sherman and the beginning of America's turbulent involvement with Korea. But North Korean leaders have not let their people forget the Sherman. In an exchange of emails, I asked Professor Armstrong of Columbia University, who has visited North Korea in recent years, what the defeat of the General Sherman means to North Koreans. He told me that the attack on the Sherman is taught in schools, that Koreans see it as the beginning of U.S. imperialist aggression against Korea, that in around 1980, North Korean history textbooks started claiming that Kim Il-sung, the original founder of the North Korean state, has a direct family connection to the Sherman. The claim is that Kim Il-sung's great-grandfather led the mob that burned the Sherman. There is no historical evidence to support this, but... In North Korean terms, it supposedly proves Kim Il-sung's anti-American revolutionary family credentials go back three generations. There is even a marker on the shore of the Tidong River at the site of where the Sherman ran aground, visible from Kim Il-sung's museum on the outskirts of Penanyang. Also in Penanyang, there is a huge painting of Kim Il-sung's great-grandfather setting fire to the Sherman. And in 2006, North Korea issued a postage stamp commemorating the sinking of the USS Sherman. Modern-day America may have forgotten or not even known much about its history with Korea. Modern-day North Korea did not. I'd like to thank the experts in this episode for their time and insights. Professor Charles Armstrong at Columbia University, Evans Revere, a Korean expert and a non-resident fellow at the Brookings Institute and Dr. Mark P. Berry, Associate Editor for the International Journal on World Peace. Now, here's a preview of Episodes 2 and 3. In 1945, the United States liberated Korea from Japanese rule, but ended up giving about half of it away to the Soviet Union, which backed North Korean founder Kim Il-sung as a communist dictator. How did that happen? Why did U.S. officials take their eye off the ball? In an important sense, uh, Korea was a bit of a sideshow at the very end of World War II. A former U.S. official who has negotiated eye-to-eye with North Korea over nukes reveals a trade secret. A successful summit tends to be a well-prepared one, and a well-prepared one tends to be a summit where the conclusions are already known even before the summit. 
and from a former senior South Korean army general. This advice for Americans. Americans should watch Spider-Man 1 and 2 at least three times in their lifetime. What does that have to do with the Korean nuclear crisis? We'll find out. I'm Mike Lee. Until next time, thank you for your time and your interest in this major developing moment in our world history. Thank you.